This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Dry, and today we have the pleasure to be talking with Denise Bates about her new book, Basket Diplomacy, Leadership, Alliance Building, and Resilience Among the Cushata Tribe of Louisiana, 1884-1984, published in 2020 by the University of Nebraska Press. This tribal history traces the careful diplomacy of the Cushata Tribe of Louisiana as they forge cooperative relations with local, state, and national politicians, business leaders, and intertribal organizations. For decades, the Cushata tribe of Louisiana struggled to secure federal Indian services, and through alliance-building activism and leveraging opportunities at key moments, tribal leaders over generations succeeded in expanding the resources available to the community while simultaneously working to protect tribal culture and identity. Denise Bates, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. It's great to be here. I wonder if you could... Um, Great to have you. I wonder if you could start off by telling us a little about you um, and your background as a scholar. Oh, certainly. Um, Well, presently, I'm an assistant professor of leadership and integrative studies at Arizona State University with affiliations in history and sustainability. Um, I'm Choctaw Creek and Cherokee descent uh, with roots in Alabama and Oklahoma. Um, Would you like me to get a little bit into the, 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 the reason why this book came about? Um, absolutely. That'd be wonderful. Okay, certainly. Um, so this book was inspired by a, my previous book project called The Other Movement, Indian Rights and Civil Rights in the Deep South that came out in 2012, uh, where I ex- examined how Southern tribes negotiated their relationships with their respective state governments in the mid-20th century. And this was against the backdrop of desegregation and civil rights activism long before gaming became a point of contention. And in the, in the other movement, I focused on Alabama and Louisiana. And although there were uh, also activities across the region that had similar outcomes, namely increased activism that shaped the path for the establishment of state-level Indian affairs commissions and contributed to reshaping federal Indian policy. And so while this initial book had been focused more on the structural aspects of this intertribal movement, I've long been interested in shifting the focus to look more at the internal struggles and efforts from a tribal perspective. And so right after the other movement came out in 2012, I was invited by the Kushada Tribal Council Council to give a talk on Southern Indian activism on their reservation in their auditorium. And the place was packed with both tribal citizens and their longtime non-Indian neighbors, allies, and friends. 
And this experience, coupled with the conversations I had afterwards with Kushada elders and um, the former tribal chairman, Mr. Ernest Sicky, who was the chairman from uh, 1973 to 1982. And this conversation helped to spark the early development of this recent book, Basket Diplomacy. And so that's sort of how it came about. Um, I can get into some more details as, if you're interested, but I'll go ahead and let you go ahead and ask me some questions. No, I'm, I'm very interested um, in the process. And so you mentioned, you know, in the introduction to the book that, you know, there were hundreds of hours of interviews. And so I, I wonder if you could discuss, you know, your general approach towards writing a community-based history and, and this story, uh, obviously, in particular. Oh, certainly. Um, well, I'll start with getting back to Mr. Sicky, who really was instrumental in the creation of this book. I mean, I really consider him a partner and collaborator in, in every sense of the word. He was, and just to give you a little bit more background, he was at the forefront of the Indian movement in Louisiana, um, involved in establishing the Louisiana Office of Indian Affairs and getting the Cushada tribe to become the first tribe recognized by the state of Louisiana in 1972. And then not very long after, reinstated to a federally acknowledged status in 1973, after they had been unilaterally and without congressional approval terminated in 1953. Um, so it was a great honor to be invited to document their history and to be welcomed by the community to collect the oral histories. Um, the the process, you know, it took several years, um, but I had the great pleasure of being able to sit and, and talk with not only tribal members, but many of their friends, political allies, business associates. And so it was just, uh, it, it felt like I, I, I had the opportunity to just sit and visit, even though there was a book project behind it. It was it was, it was quite fun, I have to say. And everyone, their enthusiasm and their support around the project really helped to keep the momentum going. Um, wonderful. Um, and thank you for, for sharing kind of the, the details of, of how this, this came about and the kind of very community-driven uh, nature of the work. I um, mean, you mentioned you, you initially wanted to focus on the 1970s um, and Kushada state relations, but, you know, eventually you, you realized you needed to, to go back and, and look, um, you know, at the 1880s and, and the settlement at Bayou Blue. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what led you to that decision and also um, just introduce the, the Kushada a little bit and, and you know, those early days um, at Bayou Blue and why that period uh, is important. Oh, certainly. Well, as you mentioned, the initial intent was to focus on the 1970s, in particular, Mr. Sicky and all of the work that he had done around his leadership and his time as chairman. Uh, but he made quite a compelling case that this was really a community-wide intergenerational effort. Um, and as a result, I decided to widen the historical scope of this project, which was absolutely the right call. So I, I'm really grateful to him for that kind of guidance. Um, in terms of the, the community itself, just to back up a little bit and offer a little bit of a timeline, um, before getting to their final home, which is around Bayou Blue, uh, it's important to give this background and follow the pattern or understanding that um, of their migration story. Uh, so 
without getting into too much detail, uh, in 1540 was the first reference to the Cushada community by a Spanish by Spanish explorer Hernando, Hernando de Soto, who first encountered them in the Tennessee River Basin. By the 1700s, uh, records show them migrating to the area uh, where the Cusa and Tallapoosa rivers converge and joined the Creek Confederacy in present-day Alabama, where Cushada leaders signed treaties, which is very significant later um, when telling their, their history because this political relationship was established and it was later called into question by the federal government. By the early 19th century, groups of Cushadas made the decision to move westward to avoid the influx um, on, of non-Indian settlers, and they joined groups of Alabamas who took a familiar journey uh, that eventually brought them to Texas. Today, there are Cushada families in Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana. There's a family still in Alabama as well. So this book is about to focus it more is on the is about the two to three hundred Cushadas who, after briefly living in Texas, redirected their movement eastward into Louisiana, just as the Civil War was winding down. And by the 1880s, they began to acquire homesteads in southwest Louisiana in what later became Allen Parish. So the first few decades of the 20th century, the tribe struggled to gain access to federal Indian services at the same time that the Mississippi Choctaw and Alabama Cushada of Texas were undergoing their own struggles, uh, which did influence the Louisiana Cushadas. And they, they experienced quite a few barriers um, early on. Uh, considered, they were considered refugee Indians that um, had been off the federal radar for so many decades by this time, uh, especially once you get into the early 20th century. And so federal officials, as I mentioned, didn't understand their history, <laughs> and they resisted the notion that Cushadas joined the, the Creek Confederacy previously in negotiating treaties. In other words, uh, there were no pre-existing federal relationship. At least that was, that was the argument that was made by federal officials. Uh, one interesting thing I will point out in, the, in this context of Southwest Louisiana is that the Cushadas, unlike many other tribes across the state of Louisiana and even the region were permitted to attend white schools in Elton long before the parish was forced to desegregate in 1965. Um, many arguments exist as to why this was. The main one being that the parish employed a stringent binary racial structure that cared more about what the Cushadas weren't uh, rather than what they were. And as an insular community, the tribe was acknowledged as and self-proclaimed their status as full-blooded Indians, which further was, was further emphasized by the fact that Kosati was their primary language, um, which left many Kushada children struggling in school. And then they used their baskets as a way of further emphasizing that their indigenous identities in the region. However, in spite of the struggles, by the 1930s, the tribe succeeded in getting federal agents out to the community to assess their situation, and soon limited funding for education and medical care followed. So that was how the federal government or the federal relationship really uh, emerged among this particular community. 
but that was short-lived because, as I mentioned previously, by 1953, uh, the passing of the Indian termination policy, um, the Kushada tribe was one that was an abandoned. And I say abandoned because they weren't officially terminated um, through the congressional action. It's simply what happened is two federal agents appeared in the community one day, and in spite of the tribe writing a letter stating that it was not their wish to be terminated, they were nonetheless unilaterally cut off from federal services, their school was shut down, healthcare funds were cut off, and so forth. And so this is one of those stories that really, uh, the oral histories that I collected and in in, in talking to the community members really gave a lot more depth and nuance and understanding of that of that time. Because not only did the BIA discontinue services to the Kushadas, uh, the impact of the policy itself obscured the tribe even further. Uh, it consistently left them out of follow-up reports. And by extension, scholarship that was later that later emerged around the termination period, the Kushadas time and time again are completely left out of that scholarship. So I'll, I think I'll stop there and let you. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking quite a lot. Oh no, thank you. Um, that's that's the whole point of this, and I appreciate you you giving us that overview of kind of the first uh, the first half, if you will, of of the book and that narrative arc. And um, you know, I think it really does hit home that you know termination policy, um, while it has you know reverberations throughout the country, uh, we think of generally in the general narrative as only affecting kind of a small percentage of tribes uh, through formal termination laws. And the the Kushada experience really pushes back on that narrative, showing kind of the many guises. Um, in which termination policy manifests itself. And so um, I think, you know, it's, it's an important story that is, uh, that is undertold and, and it affects not just the Kashada, but, you know, other groups as well. But I think uh, you really bring this experience to life um, in the book. Um, and to go back um, briefly to the 1930s and the 40s, um, you know, the, the, the book is, is kind of this inside-outside relationship. They have this back and forth uh, with the, the OIA or the BIA, in terms of services where, you know, they have them at one moment, they've, they've fought for them and, and secure them, and then they're, they're taken away once again, and uh, they have to, to fight for their, their, their rights as Indian people once more. Um, and to go back to that earlier period in the 1930s and 1940s, could you talk a little bit about um, the types of activism that the tribe was engaged in and, and how they were ultimately successful after decades of, of um, trying, uh, finally achieving at least some uh, even if modest, uh, services and recognition of their rights as, as Indian people? Oh, certainly. Um, and I would even push it back even further to the 19-teens um, when um, Chief uh, Jackson Langley, uh, who, in looking at the census records, it, it appeared that, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't declare that he spoke English or was able to read and write uh, until, I th- goodness, it was a very short period of time. So in other words, he, he really took the reins early on in the, at the turn of the century to sort of negotiate the, 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 the social terrain in which his community lived. And what that resulted in was several letters that he had written. He actually um, worked with other, other tribal members who were in leadership roles with the Indian church, for example. Um, and there's this one case that in the 1920s, where two of them actually make a trip to Alexandria to meet with a lawyer um, and I- encouraging the lawyer to assist them with some land claims rights. 
And so it's it, it really was quite shocking to me to, to find it so early on. But then when I started making the connection to what was happening with the Mississippi Choctaws, it all made sense. So that there was this, this understanding by the Cushada of what was happening in Mississippi and being influenced by sort of the, the, the courage and the activism that was being um, uh, employed by the Mississippi Choctaw during that time. So, so, that, so that's a one very clear cut case of, of activism, of reaching out to, to, to legal counsel to try and get some assistance as well as some state legislators as well. Um, and so, so there's quite a few early, in those early decades, there's quite a few examples of that happening. Um, the one thing though with the Cushada that was very interesting is this, this intergenerational, um, well, it, it, the, these initial contacts with with non-Indian folks around the community and these relationships that were built proved later on through the generations to be extremely valuable. Um, making these connections, creating these alliances and these long enduring friendships, they may not have come to fruition in terms of the the extent or the value of them in the and at the time that they were initiated, but later as you get into the 1960s and 70s, they really did emerge as, as very, uh, as providing the tribe with a, with a strong foundation in the, in the region locally. And so I think it's important to not discount those local relationships that were established that then sort of had a rippling effect in, um, in, in placing them within the state and then the, you know, the national context later in the 1970s when it was some of these same folks, or at least the descendants of these folks who were going to bat for the tribe and supporting their efforts. And so, so yeah, so for the early decades, that's, that, that's what I would identify as some of this leaders, these leaders going out and, and sort of curating these relationships, both locally and a little further abroad. Thank you for that. And so we can um, dive into some of these themes a little more. Maybe we can uh, finish out kind of the the narrative arc of the book. And so I wonder if you could talk about the fourth and fifth chapters a little bit, which to me seem like kind of the heart of the book, um, the 1960s, the 1970s, um, you know, where the tribe is undertaking new economic ventures, um, you know, gaining a, a reaffirmation of their federal recognition. And, um, you know, as, as a way of, of talking about that story, I wonder if you could also introduce us to a person you've, you've already talked about quite a bit, but uh, Ernest Sicky is really kind of the, the mover and shaker here that, um, that, is, that is profiled. Uh, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about him and his role um, in spearheading a lot of these uh, endeavors. Um, certainly. So, so Ernest Sicky, uh, it's, it's sort of difficult to talk about him without first introducing his father into the into the narrative, which is which was Davis Sicky. Um, Davis Sicky didn't hold a, a an elected leadership role within the community, but uh, played a key role in helping to develop these relationships, as I was just discussing with with key people in the in the around the community who lived around the community who had some political clout and power economically as well um, in the state of Louisiana. And so Davis, uh, so there's, I just want to back up a little bit because in 1963, there's this sort of really interesting situation or case that happened when um, immediately after President Johnson issued uh, a war on poverty, uh, there's this, this great story of Davis 
picking up the newspaper and reading about this and sort of the light bulb going off of, okay, here's another opportunity for us to really rally for some support for the community. And so he went and met with Chief Martin Abbey, who was the last traditional chief of the community and sought, and the two of them went and sought assistance of a local lawyer. You know, again, this familiar pattern of, of reaching out to legal counsel. And this lawyer, they encouraged him to go to Washington, D.C. and make a case for the tribe to Sergeant Shriver, who was, among other things, at the time, the director of Johnson, the Johnson administration's anti-poverty programs. And unsurprisingly, they sent the lawyer with a basket to gift to Shriver, and this made big news at the time. Again, this feeds into the, the title of this book, was Basket Diplomacy. Uh, so nothing came of this. However, it really began to lay the groundwork for, for um, continued efforts of gaining influence and finding additional allies. And so and this, this really had an impact on Ernest, who was growing up observing all of this. You know, his father used to take him to, he, in, in Ernest's words, I grew up in, in the courthouse. My father would always take me to the courthouse, the local courthouse, so that I can see how the American legal system worked. And so that I could understand the language that people are using and the mannerisms that they're, they're deploying. And as a way of me absorbing it and, and becoming more effective as I grew into a leadership role. And so Ernest Sickey really had a, a, a very unusual childhood. He would, he would even acknowledge that for sure. But in the sense that he, uh, on one hand, was getting a very, uh, very traditional education in the community. He spent a lot of time with, his, with the elders in the community. But then on the flip side of that, his father was taking him to legal conferences as a child so that he was able to have, a, have an understanding and, and demystify this legal system. And so at a very young age, he went away to college for a few years in Houston, joined the Air Force, eventually made his way back to the community. Even though he had big aspirations for himself professionally, he just could not leave his community behind given the, the poverty. Um, uh, many families were still getting their water from wells there very few families had electricity in the 19 this is in the 1960s by the time he was really coming of age and making these decisions and so he decided that he was going to dedicate himself to the tribe and that's indeed what he did so he worked a full-time job outside of the outside of the community so that he can pay his bills and he got married he had a large family and to support them, he had the, the job outside of the community. But at night, is, it was his time to work on helping to get the tribe um, in a position where they, they can um, petition the government, the, the federal government, for being reestablished. And so that's, there, there are all sorts of great stories and some of my favorite stories that came from this project had to do with that time period when he would work in a, he, he actually encouraged or he, he was able to um, persuade the manager of a local um, refinery because it's, it's all oil in that area. And there was a refinery down the road from his home 
And of course, during the day, it was quite active. But at night, everyone went home. So he persuaded the manager of the refinery to let him use the office at night so that he would have a quiet place to sit with a typewriter and write letters to legislators and write grants and whatever other kind of work he was doing on behalf of the tribe. And so there's fun stories in the community about the lights being on in the refinery office. So people would drive by and honk their horn to acknowledge so that they would, so he would, they would acknowledge that they knew he was in there working on behalf of the community. And so it's, uh, it's a lot of hard work and it wasn't just him. He had a lot of support and a lot of others in the community stepped up, whether it would be helping him type letters uh, or going with him to Washington, D.C. and sitting at the table and having meetings with folks and, uh, and just introducing who they are as a tribe to sort of give that, sort of rep- that representation. And so, yeah, it was, it was a long haul for certain, but it paid off. And as I mentioned, in, it, it really started with in 1972 when the, the state of Louisiana passed a resu- resolution to recognize the Cushadas as a state-recognized tribe. And within a year, some of those same, same legislators uh, really went to bat for them in Washington, D.C., along with other organizations such as the um, Association on American Indian Affairs. And they put together a case for them and within that year, they were reinstated to a federally acknowledged status. So this is, it's, it's a watered down version, but there's a lot of nuance and a lot of hard work that I certainly came to appreciate in not just looking through the archival materials and all the correspondence, but through the oral histories as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No, and, and, you know, that that scene that you talked about of him, uh, you know, with the lights on writing certainly is actually one of the ones that, that stuck with me um, reading the book and, and how, you know, he was this kind of mediator. Um, in that a lot of people, um, you know, tribal members didn't didn't necessarily understand the importance or the significance of of what he was trying to accomplish, and it seemed like at, at times it was it was lonely work, um, but he um, he saw the significance of it for the tribal community and and pursued it uh, in spite of that, and so it was, it was a really a beautiful um, beautiful story, um, and you know you mentioned all of these connections that that the tribe created with with local officials, with state officials, with community members, um, you know, in in the local area. Um, and oftentimes, I think we think of um, tribes in particular as having an adversarial relationship with uh, state and local officials in particular. Um, and this is a different story. Can you discuss a little bit how um, the Kushada navigated um, those dynamics and exerted sovereignty while maintaining good relations with, with state and local officials? 
Ooh, and that's a great question. Um, well, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways I can go about talking about this. Um, for one, I, I, I just want to back up and, and reiterate the, the quite unique uh, experience that Kushada people had uh, with in given access to white spaces and being a, being integrated into white schools. Uh, there certainly were, was a lot of hardship and a lot of discrimination that many of them expressed, but there was also access and rather early access, and which certainly helped to shape relationships with, you know, the town of Elton in particular, uh, where there's a long-standing relationship between tribal leadership and the mayor of Elton. And there are many cases in over time with different mayors being involved. Um, once you get into the 1960s and 70s, that, that, that uh, relationship becomes even more uh, solid around the tourism because the town of Elton becomes to really rely on the tribe for tourism, for encouraging outsiders to come and, and patronize Elton businesses. Um, and so that, that really kind of helped to shape the dynamic of the relationship locally. And an, another aspect of this as well, which is a consistent message that, that tribal leadership had always expressed in a variety of ways. Uh, it became more honed over time. But this, this notion of if you help us, we're, we're going to give back in some way. So helping us is helping yourself. And so to put it into the context of this region in which the tribe lives, I mean, the Jefferson Davis and, and Allen Parishes, which is where the, 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 the location that I'm talking about, were some of the most impoverished uh, parishes in Louisiana at this time. And so, you know, poverty wasn't just an Indian problem. Uh, they, they had relationships with Cajun families who sort of aligned themselves economically uh, with, the, with the tribe. Uh, and so there's this, this whole other factor of the economics and this sort of shared impoverished <laughs> state of things. And so that really helped to, not necessarily with leadership, but with, with neighbors and uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but there's there's a lot to this. And there certainly were situations where there was some conflict, particularly over land um, with the homesteads that, that Cushadas began to acquire in the 1880s uh, over time. And there's very little uh, documentary record to follow exactly what happened but essentially, a lot of the, that acreage began to diminish quite dramatically, um, and many of it through fraudulent acts of non-Indians coming in and um, and taking the land. Um, in other cases, because all but one Kushada homesteader, uh, they they used the General Homestead Act as as a way of gaining land, and so they had taxes, and many of them were unable to pay the taxes and lost land in that for that reason. And so there was some tension and some hostility around land and the court cases 
there were several court cases actually that, that came through. Uh, nothing that amounted to anything dramatic, but it was enough for me to really see where some of those tensions were. And it was really around land, particularly the, the Bell Oil, um, which is an the Bell family uh, owned all, a lot of the acreage around the tribe and also was was the was the family that began to acquire the 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 land that tribal members began to lose over time so i don't want to paint this picture that it was all rosy it certainly was not but leadership certainly exercised strategy and um were were extremely savvy in how they were able to navigate the politics in spite of some of these hardships so n- not an absence of conflict by any means, just, uh, you know, as you're saying, uh, the skilled diplomacy to, to navigate those waters and to find enough common ground for the tribe to, to kind of accomplish um, the, the ends that it seeks. Um, um, and, you know, it brings me kind of back to the title of your book, which you mentioned, uh, Basket Diplomacy. And, you know, these, these baskets um, certainly are used, you know, as a tool of diplomacy, but also seem as if they symbolize, you know, economic self-sufficiency, you know, they're a marker of of Kashada identity. And I wonder if you could, um, you know, talk about them a little bit more, um, both kind of the traditional role and in, in that they served within the community and how they, they came to serve kind of this broader function and were one part of, of that navigating of those, those complex relationships with um, various entities. Oh, certainly. Um, and so let me just say, first of all, basket diplomacy was a was a term that was coined by Ernest Sicky himself. We were actually sitting and having breakfast one morning and we were talking about this very issue. And, and he says, it's, it's, it's like as if we were using our baskets as a form of diplomacy. And then we both paused and he said, I think that should be the name of the book. <laughs> and so that, that's just to give a little bit of background as to where that term came from. Um, I just want to make sure I credit him for it because he certainly was, you know, in that moment, it was like a synergy <laughs> that he just, just, he determined that that was the appropriate way to um, frame this entire book, which I agreed. I think it really hit the nail on the head. So in terms of the baskets, um, I'd like to defer to a, to my co-author of, a, of another book that's coming up that was, which is what I see as an, uh, sort of an enhancement or a, a partner book to Basket Diplomacy, which is coming out um, through LSU Press next year. And it's Louisiana Cushada Basket Makers. Um, and my, my co-author is Dr. Linda Langley, who's the, the, the tribal preservation officer. And she, she said, that basketry is woven into the very fabric of Kushada identity, quite literally. I mean, she really gets into quite a lot of detail. But but what she means here is that absolutely all of those things it's used for as a form of diplomacy and sharing, but it's also it for many, many generations a means of survival. Baskets were used as tools for bartering and trading for necessities. Uh, they became boosters of the tribal economy by the mid-20th century as the Kushadas uh, launched a tourism venture. They've also been an anchor for maintaining their social and cultural cohesion, with the gathering and selling process being a very community-driven endeavor. Uh, the teaching of basket-making to the younger generations 
also reflects the value of the community. And then finally, baskets also represent the fluidity of Kushada cultural practices and willingness to adapt to changing environments as the early transition from being from weaving river cane baskets to sewing longleaf pine baskets attests, which through this migration, as I mentioned, from the Tennessee River Basin to Alabama and on westward and then back to Louisiana, the, the environment changes. And so this, this notion of adapting to the environment and using the materials that are available is very much reflected in the Cushada basket tradition. And then finally, the, as you mentioned, the gifting of baskets to political leaders and influential people was and still is a strategic move to generate interest in their culture that has something unique to offer, but at the same time, something to lose. And so it's a reminder of what may be lost if, if efforts are not maintained to maintain the, the, the cultural continuity and cohesion within the tribe. Thank you for that. And I'm, I'm interested in that idea of, of adaptation, because certainly one of the, the strengths of a community-based history like this is, is grasping kind of the continuity um, across multiple generations in terms of um, the relationships that they have with uh, various you know, outside groups. Um, and I, you can see a lot of those through lines. And I wonder if you could discuss a little bit how uh, tribal leaders or tribal members are, are simultaneously shaped by um, some of the national and, and perhaps even international developments um, going on in, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, or even potentially in, in the 1930s and 1940s in terms of their activism? Uh, uh, national policy? Well, national policy often framed Kushada's strategic political actions. Um, I had mentioned the the case with Davis Sickey in 1963 with the, the, um, the newspaper proclaiming President Johnson's war on poverty, but then this, this continues on um, with the constantly paying attention to what is happening nationally, uh, getting involved with other tribes. So this sort of coalition building effort that occurred. So the Kushadas were not just operating in isolation, you know, back to, as I mentioned, the turn of the century, they're paying attention to what's going on in Mississippi. They were paying attention to what was happening in Texas with the Alabama Cushada uh, Reservation. And this continued on. But within the state of Louisiana, the Cushadas the, the were at the forefront of, of really creating the, these intertribal efforts. So, for example, in 1972, the, at the same year that the Cushada the became recognized by the state of Louisiana, they helped to create the Intertribal Council of Louisiana, as well as the Louisiana Office of Indian Affairs, which both were a coalition of several tribes, including the Chittimacha, who were previously federally recognized in 1916. Uh, and so they they were able to build this these coalitions and work with state legislators and and then expand that, eventually getting involved with USET, um, which is the United Southern and Eastern Tribes, where Mr. Sicky uh, was had joined the ranks early on of other uh, tribal leaders across the Southeast and East to influence the development of Indi the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. So... So there was quite a lot of influence that was that was coming uh, from 
around and, and paying attention to what was happening with other tribes, not just in the region, but nationally. But on the flip side of that, having an impact themselves in, in influencing what was going on. And, you know, the Cushadas later led the charge in introducing Indian gaming into Louisiana, uh, which resulted in a landmark court case that reaffirmed their sovereign right to exercise jurisdiction over tribal lands. And so they, they were a part of a bigger movement, but they also were at the forefront within Louisiana, along with the Chittimacha, Tunica Biloxi, the Gina Choctaw, and, and so on. And so they, it, it's, none of this happened in isolation. There's a, quite a few connections that one could make. And so um, to that end, could you tell a little bit about um, some of the ways you hope uh, historians of American Indian history or American history more generally can benefit from looking at this particular experience and perspective? Sure. Um, so my advice to others uh, is first that there is great value in community-driven narratives. Let the stories tell the history, even if it goes into directions you didn't expect, which that certainly happened in the case of this book project. Historians sometimes have a tendency to be inflexible and document-driven in their work. And sometimes that is the only way or that's the only information we have. But in projects where one has living sources to consult, this is a gift that shouldn't be squandered, in my opinion. And so I was really fortunate to be able to have that opportunity. But also follow the thread of relationships. Uh, this was important in writing a book about multiple generations. Not only did uncovering the family connections between people become important, but in following friendships between Kushadas and non-Kushadas over generations revealed how these relationships served as a stabilizing force for the tribe as it increased its political and economic presence in the area. And now there are many more points I can make, but the one final one that I would like to say is share with the tribe. Use the opportunity to contribute your efforts to the tribe's efforts in building their own resources whether that be archives, libraries, or museums. Thank you for that. And I, I know, um, you know, undoubtedly your, your work uh, has been curtailed by um, the ongoing pandemic, but I, I wonder if you could talk about your, you know, future plans and ongoing relationship with uh, the Cachada tribe. And you mentioned uh, that you're working on a, another book project. Um, could you talk a little bit about that as well? Well, certainly. So um, as I had started to mention, and this, this book project is actually in press now, so it's, it's beyond the, <laughs> so we, we spent last, all last summer writing it, but it's taking this vast amount of resources that the, the Kushada Tribal Archive has been collecting from within the community, and then pairing that up with the materials that I was able to collect for basket diplomacy. And so it really was such a wonderful way to bring an assortment of materials together and it also initiated additional uh, oral histories that were conducted by tribal members in Kosati. And so this is the, the really the thing I'm very excited about, that, that many of these, these basket makers were interviewed by younger tribal members in their own language. 
And so the, the time it took to, to do that and then to also translate it and prepare it so that we could use it for uh, Louisiana Cushada Basket Makers, the book, uh, that it was well worth the time that we put into that. But th- that book is really an effort and it, and it came out of initially, at least on my end, of this, this sense that although basket diplomacy does incorporate the voices of the dozens and dozens of basket makers who were involved in producing these beautiful woven treasures for people like Ernest Sickey and those who came before him who carried them around the country and gifted them. I just didn't feel like I was able to give them enough space for them to really shine because that's that, that role they played is another form of leadership. And it was certainly a collective effort. And so when Linda Langley and I began speaking and she told me that she's always had this vision for 30 years. She's been thinking that she would like to write a book about the basket makers. And I said, yes, let's do it because this will be that opportunity to, to devote a whole volume to these basket makers that are primarily women, but male Kushadas also weave baskets. So it's, there's no, um, there's no gender markers even in their language. But over time, it was mostly the women who began to be the primary basket makers because they were, that was the role that they played within their, their family um, um, in terms of bringing in income. So the Louisiana Cushada Basket Makers, it really, it's, it's its own book, but it makes me very happy that it is a book devoted to the voices of those basket makers and how not only that they've been able to maintain this tradition, but more importantly, how they've been able to share it across generations and how it's not something that we're studying as part of the past. The basket-making tradition in the Kushada community is alive and well. Um, it's, in fact, the, the uh, epilogue of this new book is, was, is written by uh, two younger basket makers who are part of multiple generations that go way back. And so they're reflecting that future of this art form. Wonderful. And, and as I reflect on a few of your books, you know, you, the other movement kind of is this uh, comparative piece looking at two states and multiple tribal groups. And, and this is a, a story of, um, you know, leadership and, and the tribe. Uh, and you're, you're getting now even into a more specific uh, group within the tribe. And I, I feel like with each with each one, you're, you're drawing in new insights, obviously, and, and things that, uh, you know, weren't there in the, the previous works. And, and, and I think it's wonderful the way that you're building off of, of the things that you had started um, long before. It has been a wonderful and, journey. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing with us a little bit um, about your work and for uh, being on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. Denise Bates is an historian and assistant professor of leadership and integrative studies at Arizona State University. Uh, her new book is Basket Diplomacy, Leadership, Alliance Building, and Resilience Among the Cushada Tribe of Louisiana, 1884 to 1984, and it is now available from the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you.